Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. I want to invite you to find a Bible, uh, your own Bible or a Bible near you, and turn to the book of 2 Samuel in the Old Testament. We're working our way uh, through this uh, magnificent piece of history, God's Word to us, 2 Samuel chapter 8, and you'll find it on page 260 in the, the Black Church Bibles, page 260. Uh, while you're finding that, friends, I want to just draw your attention to something that many in our church family know about that's beginning this coming September, September 2023, a new venture of four different churches in our city have uh, grouped together to start something called the Ministry Training Academy. I know many of you have heard about it already, but not everybody uh, is fully aware of it. These new brochures are available. They're out in the foyer if you go back through the glass doors, and everybody in the church family is welcome to take one of these away after our service this morning and have an opportunity to read and hear more about it. Uh, What it is, what's going to begin happening is that we're going to begin offering a two-year course in understanding the Bible and learning to teach it to others. And the four different churches, the ministers of those churches are going to teach that course. It will begin uh, one day a week. It will happen on Tuesdays. And the course is open to everybody. It's open to folks who might just want a refresher course, folks who have some free time on their hands and you'd like to learn more about Uh, handling the Bible, understanding God's Word in a a deeper, richer way, and what is actually involved in communicating it to others. So, I do want to commend that to you and invite you uh, to take that away with you and have a look at it. One one of the most wonderful things about it is that it is here in Aberdeen in the Northeast, and it will actually be happening here in this building. Uh, We have three ministry trainees who uh, every single week get up at four, half four, something like that. They're on a train to Glasgow. So, the the trainees at least are looking at this very enviously indeed, uh, wanting to do this instead of what they're having to do in Glasgow. It's a wonderful thing for this part of the country that we're able to offer something here on our own doorstep uh, that we hope will be a tremendous blessing to all our churches in the Northeast. So, do take those away afterwards uh, and have a look at it. So, let's hear God's Word together then. 2 Samuel chapter 8, we've had the wonderful covenant promises to David in chapter 7. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took Methhegamah out of the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rahab, king of Zoab, king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 1,700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for 100 chariots. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. 
Then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus, and the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Beta and from Barothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took very much bronze. When Toi, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of Hadadezer, Toi sent his sons Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and had defeated him. For Hadadezer had often been at war with Toi. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued, from Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And so David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army, and Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder, and Zadok, the son of Ahitab, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests, and Sariah was secretary, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites, and David's sons were priests. Amen. Let's pause and pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You that in these moments together, You travel through the centuries of time. You take us back with Your living Word, but only to take us forward into a future with You. And so today, for each of us in this world in which we live, in these lives that we are leading, and wherever we are with You today, Speak to us, we pray, and show us Christ Jesus, your Son, our King. In His name we pray, amen. Imagine with John Lennon a world with no religion. Imagine no suicide bombers, no 9-11, no 7-7, no crusades, no witch hunts, no gunpowder plot, no Indian partition. Imagine a world with no Israeli-Palestinian wars, no Serb-Croat-Muslim massacres, no shiny, bouffant-haired televangelists fleecing gullible people of their money. Imagine no Taliban blowing up ancient statues, no public beheading of blasphemers. Imagine a world of no flogging of female skin for the crime of showing an inch of it. Imagine a world with no religion. Some of you will know those are the words with which Richard Dawkins begins that best-selling book that he wrote, The God Delusion. Those are the opening lines from his book. Dawkins wants us to imagine a world with no religion because, he says, religion is the root cause of most of the conflict in the world. 
religions cause wars. Have you ever had a friend say that to you? My Northern Irish accent has led many people to say that to me over the years. Yours is the religion of the Inquisition and the Crusades. And of course, friends, as we sit with our Bibles open this morning, a chapter like 2 Samuel chapter 8 closes off, doesn't it, for us, one of our escape routes when we're challenged like that. What do we do when God's people, God's people, kill and fight and destroy others, and worse than that, seems to have God's approval, God's seal of approval on what is happening? So, I want to do something slightly different for us this morning. As we come to this part of 2 Samuel, as we come to chapter 8, what we're going to do this morning is pause and stare at a problem, because it's a problem that's actually been there all the way through 2 Samuel already. The opening chapters of this book began with bloodshed on every hand, and it's going to be a recurring problem as well all the way through this book. We're going to come to it again a little bit in the coming chapters. It is the problem of a human king with blood on his sword and blood on his hands, but with God on his side. Blood on his sword, blood on his hands, God on his side. Did you see it in verse 6? The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. You get it again in verse 14. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Friends, how are we meant to understand holy war in the Bible? When God's people spill blood and God seems to approve of what they do. I think this is a good time to do this this morning. Chapter 8, verse 16. This is a summary chapter. This is not strictly chronological working its way through the book. The really alert folks among you this morning will have noticed verse 16, Joab the son of Zariah was over the army. At this point in 2 Samuel, Joab is dead. So, the writer is is pausing. Here Here is a summary of David's victories. Here is a summary of his conquests. It seems like a good time this morning to do something slightly different. So, we're going to come back to chapter 8 again next week. This morning is the big picture of this kind of text in the Bible. This morning is a study of how to read the Bible as one united book. So, this morning, friends, I hope, I hope you're feeling active, healthy, fit for 2023. You're going to be flicking through your Bible this morning more than we normally do. You're going to need other passages Think of it like this morning, that great white screen behind my head. This morning, we are putting in place the canvas. Here is the canvas of the whole Bible. Next week, we'll come back to fill in the details and put things actually up on it. I want to show you three things this morning. Three things, the problem, the purpose, the place. The real problem, the ultimate purpose, the safe place. Number one, the problem. I've already been talking about the problem, haven't I? It's obvious in this chapter, chapter 8. Some of us, I guess, as I, as I read these verses, we didn't actually notice a problem. 
We're so used to this in the Bible, war, violence, bloodshed. That, that's just the way it is. It's the way the world is. It's the way the Bible is. And actually, you're kind of surprised to hear me say this morning that there's a problem. But others, of course, with us this morning, we find this extremely difficult, don't we? We're left scratching our heads. The Lord gave victory, really, to, to David, his king? This doesn't describe the God that I know, let, let alone describe the people of God that you think you're a part of. We just don't know what to do with this, do we? And at worst, if push comes to shove, we admit we really don't like it and we'd rather it wasn't here. Our Bibles would be easier without it. I think in chapter 8, in some ways, the details make the problem a little bit worse, don't they? Look at verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines, but not just defeated them, he subdued them. That word subdue, it literally means to humiliate, not simply to conquer, but, but, but to humiliate a people. David takes a symbol of power out of the hand of the Philistines. What about verse 2? He measured them with a line, the Moabites, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death and one full line to be spared. And to top it all off, as if this wasn't bad enough, verse 4, animal cruelty. David hamstrung all the chariot horses, leaving only enough for 100. Do you feel the difficulty, friends? How could God sanction such extreme measures? You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, the Lord Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Do not resist an evil person. Do you see the problem? Well, what do we do with a chapter like Second Samuel chapter 8? What do we do with books like this in the Old Testament with large parts of our Bible? Well, here's the second thing. Number two, here's what begins to help us. I want to encourage you, this Sunday and next Sunday, both sermons will be required. If you're left with questions this week, you must be here again next week to listen to both parts. Here's the first first step in the right direction. Number two, we need to grasp the purpose of what David is doing here, what, what God is doing. Why did God get His people to do things like this at this point in their history? Now, here, here's the first passage we need to go back to. I want you to turn back to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 7, you'll find it on page 151 of your church Bible, 151. Keep your finger in Second Samuel 8. That's our main kind of uh, focus point, but we're going to move through the Bible this morning. When you get to a book like Second Samuel, a king like David thinks he is acting in line with God's law. He's, he's doing what God has told his people to do. Here is God's word to Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, and He clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, 
the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and He would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, chop down their asherim, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. You were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you, is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. See, friends, all the way through the Bible, from beginning to end, Deuteronomy 7 and 2 Samuel chapter 8, God is showing His people that He he will not, he cannot tolerate idolatry. He cannot tolerate wickedness in the world, the, the wickedness of the nations. God is teaching His people here that He cannot coexist side by side like oil and water in, in Will's cup. You, you couldn't put the two substances together and expect them to mix. They, they, they do not go together, the, the holiness of God and the wickedness of the world. See the reason there in verse 3, why it, why it has to be removed. You shall not intermarry with them. If you don't remove the people from the land, before you know it, you'll be walking your daughter up the aisle, but it will not be an Israelite wedding ceremony. It will be a pagan wedding ceremony. And one by one, your whole family will begin to turn their back on me. Verses 5 and 6, destroy the false gods, remove the idols, and remove the people who love the false gods and the idols, because they will make you love them too. The, the purpose, the ultimate purpose of what God is doing through the world fr from the beginning of the fall onwards to the end of the Bible is that God is removing evil from His world. God is removing sin and wickedness. But when we see that this is what David is doing in 2 Samuel 8, removing from the promised land the things that should not be there, that were not meant to be there from the beginning, what we begin to realize is that David is simply doing it at one point in one particular way, what God Himself has said He will always do to sin and what He will one day do completely at the end of time. See, one way to think of it, Deuteronomy 7, 2 Samuel 8, one way to think of it is this. Do you know the, the, the classic scene? You see it in, in films, TV programs. I hope it hasn't happened to you personally, but you know this scene. That the parents go away for the weekend and leave the teenagers in charge. The way it appears on your TV, of course, it's never a pretty sight when they come back, is it? The parents come back, and what has happened? The house has been the scene of a rave, a drugs deal, and a police investigation. 
What do the parents do when that happens? What is the right response? Is it to just hand over the keys to the children permanently? When God made the world and He made it good, what's the recurring refrain all the way through the opening chapters of Genesis? God saw that it was good. 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 Goodness and beauty and perfection on every hand. And when God put gardeners in His garden and they vandalized the garden, the Bible tells us God was not content to simply shrug His shoulders and let it be. Ah, well, that was that. Up to you, I suppose. You crack on. Here's a little wrist slap, and on we go with the project. No, God's God's perfect world is destroyed, and right from the very start, God is angry. And so, friends, from from Genesis chapter 3 onwards, here is the reality of the Bible. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. From the moment the fall happened, and God responded with His righteous, holy love that took the form of anger, his, his holy love that had been spurned and thrown back in his face. Isn't that what Adam and Eve said to God? Thanks for the start. We'll take it from here. You, you can leave now, God. Your work is done. From that point on, the earth that you and I live in, the, the life that you and I lead has been headed in a direction where one day every single bit of wickedness and evil and brokenness in God's world will be removed. It's what the flood shows us, doesn't it, right at the start. Idolatry and wickedness and sin and greed is going to be destroyed. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. It's as true of our world now today as it was for Adam and Eve, as it was for the Israelites when they entered Canaan. It's as true as it was for David when he ascended to the throne. And so, friends, one way to think about a chapter like what we've just read together this morning, or any other chapters like it in in 2 Samuel or anywhere else in the Bible, every single time we see God's judgment breaking out in history, banished from Eden, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed, Deuteronomy chapter 7, Deuteronomy chapter 9, chapter 20, Joshua as the people enter the land. Every single time we see it, we realize God is sending in advance a small instance, a small instance of the one great end-time judgment to come. Judgment is difficult for us, isn't it? And people disbelieve that it's real or that it's coming, and all the way through the Bible, God is saying, you don't believe that it's coming? Here it is. Here's one example. Here's another example. These things really happened. Here's a serialized extract before the complete reality. Here's a trailer before the main event. Every now and then in history, that ultimate great terrible day of the Lord breaks into history in miniature form comes in advance to show us and to warn us what is coming. 
And so friends, as we look at a chapter like 2 Samuel chapter 8, as we come next week to look at some of the details within it, what we have to realize is that God has not changed. God is not like us. We become accustomed to sin, don't we? Sin over time numbs us. We, we acclimatize to it. The temperature is turned up slowly and we don't notice it. We blend in. But we mustn't ever think that God is like that. That, that God grows slowly more tolerant of idolatry as the story in the Bible goes on. No, it, th- th- this chapter shows us God doesn't, does He? God will have His perfect world. And nothing Absolutely nothing will ever stop him from doing so. Every individual instance of judgment is here to warn us and to humble us about future judgment. I want you just to turn forward to see this in the ministry of the Lord Jesus himself. Turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. Luke's Gospel, chapter 13, page 872. 872 in your Bibles. I think we've got two more passages after this. Luke chapter 13. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. There is religious conflict. Pilate takes Galileans, murders them brutally, mixes human blood with animal blood, all as a way of trampling over the religion of God's people. It's like lighting the blue touch paper in Palestine. What is more likely to start civil war than doing this? People come to Jesus and say, can can you believe what Pilate did? He mingled the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices, and Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Not just religious conflict. Let me tell you about natural disasters, Jesus says, verse 4. What about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Isn't that our world, friends? Religious conflict, natural disasters. Jesus teaches us, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See what the Lord Jesus is saying? Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Look at the next parable that that follows. The the axe is at the root of the tree for God's people in Luke chapter 13. Judgment is what comes to all men, to all women. It is what all deserve. And sometimes God sends that judgment in advance in small measure. And there is only one way to be safe, to repent. It's why that It's why although Jesus tells us to love our enemies, in saying that, He does not mean that God Himself will pretend that there are no enemies. God will never pretend that enemies do not exist. At the end of time, He won't. 
when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, what he is saying to us is, leave it to God. Leave it to God to judge. Just turn forward to see this, Romans chapter 12. Here's the direction that all of this goes in, Romans chapter 12. And verse 14, page 948, page 948. Romans chapter 12, verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You you see how the teaching of the Lord Jesus works out here? You love your enemies, Jesus says, because judgment is coming. Leave it to God. Paul says here, taking up the same thing, you love your enemies, you love them and serve them, and the reason you can do that, friends, is because vengeance is mine, says the Lord. It is mine to avenge, I will repay. It is unavoidably true, isn't it, friends, that for many of us, the discomfort we feel with the idea of judgment and vengeance in the world says more about the, co- the comfort we're experiencing in the world that we live in. Our discomfort with judgment is not matched by the discomfort of other believers in other parts of the world whose very lives are being taken from them. For some believers to say to them, love your enemies and leave vengeance to the Lord is profoundly costly, hugely difficult. Brothers and sisters, the call of the gospel today to us, to our world, to God's people is to repent because vengeance belongs to Him. You know, when we started 2 Samuel, the opening sermon, I said that 2 Samuel is a picture of the world that we all live in. Carnage on every hand, people falling, the the curtain comes up and there are dead bodies on the stage right from the very beginning. And 2 Samuel is a picture of the world that we need with a king in charge, removing evil from the world. We want a world, don't we, where God's king wins and wins decisively. We want a world where beautiful justice reigns. I was just looking at the headlines the day that I was typing this. What about the world that we live in? Train drivers offered pay rise in bid to end strikes. Meet the city defying Russia at the end of the earth. Warring sides trade blame as the truce in Ukraine falters. Body of a Kenyan LGBTQ activist dumped 
in a metal box. Iranian protesters sentenced to death, two more hanged. See, friends, here we are on the 8th of January. We've sung together about the year ahead. Christmas is over. Now what? Now what? Now, many of us are relieved, of course, aren't we? Christmas is over. We're glad to get it behind us, back to normal, sanity and reality instead of manic busyness and all of that. But, but what I mean is, now what for Jesus? Now what for Him? In December at Christmas, the world, at least in a tiny way, some people, more people than usual, come to the manger to look at the baby, don't they? But by January, Jesus is forgotten, right? Maybe Jesus is the religious equivalent of Liz Truss. Do you remember Liz Truss? Uh, the BBC had a wonderful little the, the year in a minute, and what, what, they did, what they did in that short clip of, of the year, a tiny segment of Liz Truss saying, I'm not a quitter, and immediately straight afterward, the, the clip is, I am resigning. Is Jesus just back in the box with the Christmas decorations gone, a memory for another year? I want to say to us this morning, friends, that we as Jesus' people, we need to remember what the world forgets, and it's this. Jesus is heavily armed. The Lord Jesus is heavily armed. That the child in the manger is dangerous. He has a sword in his hand. Do you remember what Simeon said to Mary, to Jesus' mother? This child that you're holding as he hands the precious baby back to her, this child will split the world in two. Some will rise when they meet him, and some will fall, and a sword will pierce your own soul also. Child in the manger... Ah, yes, but He puts the world in danger. Our King is a warrior. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. No, I have not come to bring peace. What did Jesus say? But a sword. Not, not for you and me, not for His followers, a literal physical sword in our hands. I hope not, friends. No, but the sword of division, the sword of choosing, will we walk His way or a different way? The sword of pain and cost that often runs right through the living rooms of our homes. Brothers and sisters, Second Samuel chapter 8 is God saying to us, I have heard the prayer of that woman, Hannah, in the temple. Do you remember her prayer, the opening? First Samuel chapter 2. A woman stands and prays, give strength to your king. Remove your enemies from the earth, O God. And God says to us, I have answered Hannah's prayer. I have given strength to my king, my son, the Lord Jesus. He comes to tell us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us, not because there is no sword to wield, but because He now holds that sword in His righteous hand. 
He is the warrior, not us. I want you to turn to the last passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, look at verse 24. Sorry, I forgot to get a page number for your Bibles. What's the page number? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. 961, page 961. Then comes the end when He, this is talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Is your Jesus at the start of a new year a destroyer? He will destroy every rule and every authority and power. He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Oh, that is the world we want, isn't it? Peace restored on every hand, shalom, perfect harmony between God and man and humanity between ourselves as death is destroyed forever. I want to finish with this, friends. We've seen a real problem. We've seen God's ultimate purpose to remove sin, death, evil, wickedness from the earth. I want to finish with this. Number three, our safe place. Not just a problem, not just a purpose, but a place. Is there a safe place on earth? See, these judgments of God that we've been looking at, they they run through the whole Bible, don't they, from Genesis chapter 3 onwards. And as those threads of God's judgment run through the Bible, so at the same time a different thread runs all the way through the Bible of God's mercy and God's grace. Adam and Eve mess up and are exiled from the garden, but they are not destroyed. Animals are sacrificed, they are clothed. That the world is sinful and rebellious, and God acts in judgment as He sends the flood, but in, in mercy He sets His affection on Noah. And, and God begins to call out a people to Him. Then, then He sets His love on Abraham and all who come from Him again. And yet, all who come from Abraham's line mess up again. Get it wrong again, and there is judgment again, but still God keeps His people. He rescues them from Egypt. I wonder if you noticed that little warning tucked back into Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 4. You might want to just go back to it, back to it. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 4. They would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and He would destroy you quickly. I am asking you, yes, God says, to destroy the nations around you, but if you turn from me and do what they did, then the same will happen to you. That's what happens to the people, isn't it, in the promised land? They don't last long. Their heads are soon turned. They do exactly what the Lord tells them not to do. They're led astray in intermarriage, and soon their hearts are given to other gods. And so there is the judgment of the exile. And yet again, God acts in mercy, and He keeps some of His people, and some of them return to the land. 
When it comes to the New Testament, friends, and to the teaching of the Lord Jesus, He shows us the grace and mercy of God, doesn't He? He is the one who comes to welcome the outsider, to forgive the guilty, to wash clean the dirty, to welcome the unlovely. And He is the one who speaks most about hell in the Bible. All those New Testament warnings about the end, they they climax, don't they, with that terrible picture in Revelation chapter 13 and 14, the winepress of God's wrath as all sin and all rebellion is finally one day crushed and removed forever. Friends, what happens as we move through the Bible then is that as you move from beginning to end, the picture of God's judgment becomes clearer and clearer and clearer. The volume gets turned up and up as you move through, just as the picture of God's grace gets clearer and clearer and clearer, all the way through to the end. These two themes move through the Bible, running all the way through from beginning to end, until eventually what happens to them? They collide, don't they, in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the the shadow of the cross falls back across the Old Testament, doesn't it? Falls back across 2 Samuel chapter 8. The cross of Christ is the only hope for the people of God. Here is the only way to be safe when the warrior king comes to judge the earth, to hide under the cross where the perfect king dies for imperfect people, where the warrior king goes to the cross to surrender his life for his own, or the only safe place on earth is under the cross of Christ. I want to finish this morning, friends, I want to finish by inviting you to come back again to our evening worship tonight. Maybe you're not in the habit of of doing so. I want to invite you as a new year begins to do that. And I want to invite you to do so because this evening we're going to share the Lord's Supper together. See, the king who fights to vanquish his enemies is also a host who prepares a table to win his enemies. We're going to eat the Lord's Supper this evening, and as we eat it, we're going to sing together these words. A feast of joy unspeakable is spread by Him who is Himself the living bread. A place for hungry souls is now prepared, a life of endless glory to be shared. Yet, Yet, places at this feast were dearly bought when Jesus Christ came down and souls were sought and found and saved by His own precious blood to make our peace with heaven's holy God. Amen.